Welcome to the All of Christ for All of Life podcast, brought to you by Canon Plus. This week's episode is a talk from George Grant about Booker T. Washington from the series Biographies of Great American Saints, with talks from Dr. Grant, Steve Wilkins, and Douglas Wilson. Listen to the full series now, only on Canon Plus. And, uh, one of the things that is difficult about that is the number of reliable resources available to us. Just in the last 35 years or so, libraries have begun to purge their shelves of uh, primary and early secondary resources. Maybe some of you have been the beneficiaries of library sales. You go to these library sales and you walk away with uh, these uh, leather-bound tomes that no one has checked out of the library since 52. And uh, you walk away and you think, I can't believe that they are getting rid of this to make way for the new John Grisham novel. And that's a two-edged sword in many ways, because while many of us benefit from these library sales, it means that primary and secondary resources are literally disappearing. It's one of the reasons why it's so important for us to republish some of these old works, not just so that they can be more widely disseminated into the hands of the body of Christ, but so that they're saved, literally, from extinction. And uh, while there is a proliferation of republishing on the Internet, it's kind of like walking into a Barnes & Noble store. It looks really big and varied at first until you realize they don't have a lot of stuff in here. That certainly has been the case of most of the people that, that we have talked about in this conference, including Booker T. Washington, the subject of this talk, who, who actually lived in our century. You would think that a relative contemporary, there would be lots of sources, lots of resources, plenty of biographies, uh, but because Booker T. Washington has become, to a large degree, a politically incorrect figure, there is little more than children's literature. Uh, the, the one serious academic biography that has been done of Booker T. Washington, the only one, written by the man who was also responsible for collecting his papers and publishing his letters. It's written entirely unsympathetically from the position that Booker T. Washington was essentially a betrayer of his own people. And that's the best resource that we have. And so when we, when we delve into the lives of, of many of these remarkable individuals, we literally are having to, to piece together scraps and palimpsests uh, from a wide range of sources. I had read a number of years ago a children's biography of Booker T. Washington and was much impressed. And over the years I have sought to find some reliable source some good biography that I could pass on to my own children and have come up short until I just decided I'm going to go and commission somebody to write this and do it right. And, and thankfully, I had the opportunity to do that. Let me highly commend to you the biography of Booker T. Washington by Stephen Mansfield, a dear friend of mine, 
It's entitled, Then Darkness Fled. In fact, uh, Stephen and I did a book together a couple of years ago on the history of religion in Tennessee, and a lot of the Gideon Blackburn material is drawn from uh, his great wisdom of that age as well. I had the, um, the rare opportunity about the same time that I was commissioning Stephen to to write this leadership profile and biography of Booker T. Washington to go with uh, some friends of mine uh, from Birmingham, Alabama, down to Tuskegee University and actually visit the, the, the great institution that Booker T. established. The centerpiece of the Tuskegee University campus there in southern Alabama is the Booker T. Washington Monument. Uh, Standing upon a a grand classical pedestal is a remarkable bronze statue sculpted by uh, Charles Keck in 1922. Booker T. Washington himself is portrayed stately, dignified, venerable, with his... uh, with his uh, stalwart uh, nature very evident in the bronze. Shoulders are back, uh, jaw is set, eyes are forward, um, a very, very dapper bow tie around his neck. His eyes are set upon the horizon, while one hand is extended as if toward the future. The other hand is used to um, rather resolutely pull back a thick veil, presumably the smothering cloak of Strabo, from the brow of a young man seated at his side. The young man seated there is obviously poor. He's only half clothed, in stark contrast to the dapper presence of Washington. He's uh, sitting barefoot upon the symbols of his labor, an anvil and a plow. But he, too, is is gazing off into the distance while he grasps a massive academic textbook upon his knee. The inscription beneath this arresting uh, image asserts, Washington lifted the veil of ignorance from his people and pointed the way to progress through education and industry. The monument is a perfect tribute to the man. While his life, the long and difficult journey up from the obscurity of slavery to the heights of national influence and renown is a remarkable testimony of individual achievement and of personal sacrifice, the greatest legacy of Booker T. Washington was not what he accomplished himself, but what he helped thousands of others to accomplish, both black and white. Martin Luther King Jr. said of him, from an old clay cabin in Virginia's hills, Booker T. Washington rose up to be one of the nation's greatest leaders. He lit a torch in Alabama. Then darkness fled. He was born on April the 5th, 1856, in a small tobacco plantation in the back country of Franklin County, Virginia. 
His nine years in slavery were spent in abject poverty, though it was hardly worse than the hard-scrabble existence of his poor masters. James Burroughs, his wife Elizabeth, and their 14 children shared quite generously their impoverished estate with their seven slaves, including Jane, the mother of the young child Booker. Booker was, like most farm laborers in that day, slave or free, accustomed to the difficult tasks of uh, scratching out a living from the land. His early days were filled with remembrances of grave difficulty, cold nights and hungry bellies. And yet, they were years that he looked back on with some satisfaction. A satisfaction because there was a camaraderie in the fields, working side by side with the sons and daughters of the master, the satisfaction at the cohesiveness and love of his own family. A satisfaction that in God's good providence, he was brought to a place where he might be given the advantages of a freedom the likes of which the Frederick Douglasses could never have even imagined. His family was a fairly typical slave family. His mother, Jane, was the cook and the housekeeper for the Burroughs family. He had an older brother and sister named John and Amanda. And uh, they, they made their existence in the, in the kitchen of the house as best they could and found in their existence sweet joy where others might only find bitterness. While the, the terribly uncivil war that racked the region in those early years brought even more hardship and privation as a Booker began to grow up, there was also a sense of anticipation and excitement among the slaves. They even spoke openly about the possibilities of the freedom that they uh, might come to enjoy if the Yankee armies succeeded in their invasion and subjugation of the South. And though their prayers were ultimately answered, even after the war, the poverty of the slaves remained unabated. Young Washington's first memories, then, were of the difficult and dire straits his family was forced to endure. And, and during the war, Booker later admits that uh, all of the slaves, particularly there in Franklin County, all of the slaves had mixed feelings about the possibilities of freedom. Mixed feelings that were amply justified in the days following the war. The fact is, is that there was a great deal of confusion about what the war meant and what the war's intentions were. Uh, they had the opportunity to run across a number of, of Union soldiers during that awful conflict and they found in the Union soldier, soldiers more animosity toward them, uh, more antipathy toward them than they found in their own masters. And the fact that they had grown up with the masters and 
uh, worked side by side with their masters and uh, lived in the same homes with their masters and, and ate with their masters meant that they had an identification with their masters that, uh, while not always particularly comfortable and certainly not always familial, was, was nevertheless marked by true affection. It was with, with tears and anguish that Booker and his family moved away from the Burroughs farm in the years following the war. In addition to confusion that, that might be stirred up in these slaves who only got half the story half the time of the events that swirled around them, there was a great deal of confusion about what the war ultimately meant for them legally. But there was a, a, a slave who was able to read in the farm just neighboring the Washington's uh, place of labor there in Franklin County. And, and, and somehow he was able to at least uh, get part of, if not all of, the Emancipation Proclamation. And word spread among the slaves that uh, the Emancipation Proclamation was bad news indeed. Slavery was protected and preserved uh, by the Emancipation Proclamation, in all the lands of the North, freed only those slaves which the Union had no jurisdiction over, meaning that it freed no one. After the surrender of Lee at Appomattox, there was no freedom for the slaves. They weren't just instantly set free. In fact, in states like Delaware and Maryland, states that remained within the Union, slavery remained an institution until overturned by the courts some two years after the war was concluded. So, in fact, the slaves of the South were freed before the slaves of the North. Yeah, if you want to get technical. Do they fly the American flag over the State House in Maryland? And so there was a, a great deal of confusion about the legal standing, there was, there was emotional confusion as people dealt with the, uh, the wrenching familial ties that uh, would rip them up from uh, their homelands and set them out into some unknown future. And then there was just the sheer uncertainty about what to do and where to go once it did become evident that slavery as a peculiar institution, had ended. Jane came in and sat among her children in their little cabin, meager, but the only home that they had ever known, and she informed them that they would have to leave. Where will we go? Who will, who will we work with? How will we eat? What home will we sleep in? Are we just to go out onto the road and start walking until when? Mother, what will happen to us? These were the questions that, that came to the Booker. So uh, the war and emancipation and uh, the, uh, the strange secrets of the Emancipation Proclamation and slavery in the North were all things that, 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 that plagued Booker. And uh, throughout his life, he pondered these things well. He also pondered the seeds that, by God's providence, he saw 
had been planted in his heart during his years of slavery. For instance, one of the tasks that he had was to walk the borough's children to their one-room schoolhouse just to make sure that they got there and got home. So, so twice a day during the school year, Booker had the opportunity at least to peer through the doorway of a schoolroom. He later talks about how during those brief glimpses, a longing was developed in his heart. Oh, how he wanted to investigate the, the, the mysteries that might be divined out of McGuffey's reader. Oh, what would it be like to, to actually be able to crack the code of Webster's blueback speller? He thought of this and dreamed of it. In fact, now, often he could think and, and dream of little else. Uh, later, he would write in his, his devotions for the Tuskegee students that it was there that God began to do a work in his heart, though he did not know that it was God, and he did not know that it was a work. Yet, yet it was there in, in slavery that, that suddenly the, the true root of freedom began to take hold of his heart. Many commentators have looked at Booker T. Washington's lack of bitterness in his slave experience. Uh, They have have looked at his perspective of those years of bondage. And they have said, he was a sellout. He, um, in a very famous uh, speech, once said these words. We went into slavery pagans. We came out Christians. We went into slavery pieces of property. We came out American citizens. We went into slavery without a language. We came out with the language of Shakespeare. We went into slavery with slave chains clanking about our wrists. We came out with the American ballot in our hands. As awful as slavery has been for us, Slavery fitted us for the kingdom. When Booker's family finally vacated the farm, they made their way to Malden, West Virginia. There, a number of former slaves had attached themselves to a former Union general who was operating a salt mine. Nearby there were also coal mines where uh, work was ready. And, and so they uh, made their home there in a kind of, of shanty town. Uh, Booker later looked back on his days in Malden and, and wrote these words. There is a kind of slavery that is imposed by a sheer freedom that we never counted on when the chains of the peculiar institution bound us. I would not have known as a child that I could be free and breathe nothing but fouled air and walk in the the muck and the mire of human refuse and be thrown together with all of the malice of human depravity and have no way out. 
And we exchange the poverty of, of one kind of slavery for a worse poverty of another. If true liberty is to come to us as a people, then we must know the root of true liberty. And the root of it, he said, is not merely political. It cannot be signed into existence by laws and legislators. It must spring from the human heart. It must grow out of an ascent to the gospel that truly sets men free. It was there comparing the the dire privations of the shantytown of Malden with the slavery of the Burroughs family that caused Booker T. Washington to yearn for a yet greater freedom. In this community of salt mines and coal mines and dawn-to-dusk hard-scrabble labor, that a former slave who could read migrated, searching for work. This former slave, James Davis, was convinced by one of the local pastors to open a small school for the children of these former slaves. School was part-time. It was hodgepodge. They had only a few textbooks, and uh, they met in just uh, the back room of the pastor's home. There was no schoolhouse. There were no slates, and uh, there was no chalk. And yet, for the very first time, Booker T. Washington had the opportunity to learn how to read. And oh, how he was hungry to learn. He was a quick study, and before very long was was zooming past his teacher. It was about that time that the owner of the salt furnace, General Ruffner, a Vermont veteran of the Union armies with all of the, the stern attributes of the granite state chiseled into his soul, invited young Booker to become a houseboy in his home. His wife, Viola Ruffner, was uh, like the general, a true New England rock. She expected everything to be orderly, clean beyond the imagining of this young former slave. She was persnickety about Every single detail of her home, nothing could be out of place. Everything had to be ruled by what she called the gospel of the toothbrush. Booker hated it there. He couldn't stand the the fussiness. He couldn't stand the, the attention to detail. He'd never seen anything like this in all of his life. And so he ran away, ran away about five or six times. But amazingly, the general, and particularly Viola, saw in this young charge some spark. And every time he would run away and get in trouble, once he hopped a a steamship and was found hiding inside of a trunk, another time he uh, he was caught wandering down the road, lost and alone. Each time dragged back, kicking and screaming, and pressed back into the service of these two stern Puritans from Vermont. Gradually, 
Booker began to realize that God was putting him into a kind of school, the likes of which he had never seen or imagined. He began to, to see in this home the significance of beauty and order, of quiet. The Booker used to remark that the, the, the house of the Ruffners was so quiet that it made his ears ring. But you can imagine living in slave quarters all of his young life and moving into a shanty town where there was noise and boisterousness and drunkenness and carousing at all times. You can imagine what a, what a, a quaint Victorian a Puritan home must have seemed like. Doilies upon the table, fresh-cut flowers uh, in every room, everything in its place, and, and everything established according to a strict schedule. Uh, Booker began to realize that, that order and beauty and, and even fustiness grew out of a vision of life and culture that he had never known, but he yearned to know. It was also there that he first caught sight of a real library. Viola, taking her charge very seriously, began to expose young Booker to the great literature of the past, and particularly she had a very well-stocked library of the Puritan divines. And it was then that, that Booker began to read for the very first time serious theology. He began to read the Puritan divines with, with eyes that now began to comprehend why it was that, that the religion of the old slave camps and even the religion, the boisterous religion of liberation in the shanty towns was insufficient to raise up a people to productivity and viability in the modern world. About that time, he heard about a school. A school about 500 miles away. A school specifically designed for young former slaves to train them, equip them, prepare them for productive life as citizens of this newly restored republic. Run by General Samuel Armstrong, the Hampton Institute was a kind of beacon light in Booker's mind of hope to escape the world of the shantytown and enter the world of Viola's library. Problem was, of course, he had no money at all. He had no way to cross those 500 miles. He didn't even have the, the, the sense of propriety to write ahead and to inquire about scholarships, to see if there was a space. If he traveled 500 miles, if he got there, would he just be turned away? All he knew was, this, this is hope. Hope for me and, and for my family to escape this, this life. He began to voice his desire to go, and his mother, Jane, thought that he was just crazy. I mean, after all, uh, Booker at this time doesn't even have a last name. He's just Booker. 
And he's, um, he's working in this salt mine half the day, working in this, this Puritan household the other half of the time. He has no resources. There is nothing to commend him to higher education except this burning passion. But as word got out, some of the former slaves in the shanty town began to realize that perhaps, just perhaps, one of their own might escape this existence. And so they came with their nickels and their pennies. And they brought them to Booker and said, come back someday and teach us to. He had enough money to get about halfway there. And so, kind of screwing up all of his nerve, he, he took a coach. And he got as far as he could go until his money expired. He found work two or three times along the way in order to, to get a little further down the road. It was two and a half weeks before he finally arrived at the Hampton Institute. By this time, he was filthy and ragged. He had in a little knapsack thrown over his shoulder his only worldly possessions, a small pocket knife given to him by Viola, and an extra shirt, the shirt that his older brother John had worn for two weeks to break it in before he had to put its scratchy cotton upon his own back. And so it was a precious possession that he wore only on the Sabbath day. Now, the Hampton Institute was a kind of spit and polish institution. All of the students wore uniforms. They marched in single file lines uh, whenever they went from building to building. There was a, a single red brick three-story classroom building and then old Union barracks that were scattered around. And when B Booker showed up, he sees all of these students in these uh, uniforms marching you know, back and forth to class. Here he is. He's got these ragged pants that don't even reach the middle of his calves. He's barefoot. He's got his uh, sole possessions, a pocket knife and an extra shirt in the little knapsack thrown over his shoulder. He's filthy and, by all accounts, he didn't smell real good. He makes his way to the administration office and he asks for admission to the school. Classes had started some um, three weeks earlier. The young lady who was the reception, serving as the receptionist took one look at him and started to chuckle. What has turned up on our doorstep, she says. But seeing his insistence and his determination, she decides to, to give him a short interview. She walks into a, a classroom and begins to ask him some questions, and she's, she's rather impressed by his pluck. So she tells him, go into the next room and sweep it. I'll be back in a half an hour and we'll continue the interview. This was the test. He knew it was the test. She knew it was the test. So he went into that room and he threw himself into it. He was going to sweep it clean. He took off his, his knapsack and grabbed his his beloved Sabbath shirt. He dipped it in ammonia water and he scrubbed down the room. He didn't just sweep it. He scrubbed it down. The walls, 
the writing board, the windows, the window sills. When she came back a half an hour later, he was climbing up on the double hung sash of the window and he was trying to, uh, to clean the top of the, um, of the window frames. She went out around the room with a white handkerchief and she couldn't find a speck of dust. She said, well, it seems to me that in the good providence of God, you've been admitted. He had always had this deep and abiding hunger to learn, despite the fact that he was not afforded the opportunity to go to school until he was practically in his teens. But here, at the age of 16, admitted to the Hampton Institute, one of the first schools established for former slaves, he had his opportunity, and he proved his mettle. Though he worked full-time as a janitor in order to pay his tuition, he graduated with honors in a mere three years. In the first semester, he was at the very bottom of his class. When he graduated, he graduated with... Um, Honor points, 48 points higher than the next closest student. Upon graduation, he determined that he would fulfill his promise to the slave, the former slaves of Malden, and he went back to work, to teach among the laborers in the salt and coal mines there. And for the next two years, he established a, a small school. But... Um, this small school, he quickly found unsatisfactory for his purposes. And so besides the ordinary day classes that he had, he started a night school for those who could not attend the day school. And then he added a Sunday school. In addition to the Sunday school, he taught three Bible studies during the week. He even the practice of going from uh, section to section of the shanty town to hold the Bible studies so that all would be afforded the opportunity to partake. It uh, was said of many of his contemporaries there in the Malden shanty town that, uh, that, that people began to scurry whenever they saw young Booker walking uh, through the muck and the mire toward their huts. It's almost comical to imagine them trying to clean up uh, because he stood like an inspector general in every hut and uh, pointed out for their own good the necessity of hygiene and cleanliness and order. About that time, uh, he began to sense a call into the ministry. The doctrines of grace had become uh, a great allure to him. He, he yearned to proclaim the gospel with greater clarity. He was very dissatisfied with what he called the silliness of the black church. He believed that the, the black church actually reinforced many of the worst tendencies of the former slave communities. And, and he yearned to see the gospel worked out and in real substance, and so he decided that he would go away to seminary. He went to Wayland Seminary, the only seminary that would accept him, in Washington, D.C., and he was sorely disappointed. He was disappointed because he found in this school what he called shameless politics, big city conceit, pretentious display, and academic impracticality. 
he was shocked to discover that many of the, the young blacks attending the seminary were there to escape from their people, their communities, their families, their former lives, and from the labor that it entailed. Most of them were there on scholarship, and they, they spent whatever small funds they had at their disposal on the clothes of dandies, carriage rides in Washington, D.C., and other uh, showpieces. The gospel that he heard there at Wayland Seminary was, was a gospel not proclaiming the doctrines of grace, but rather a strange notion of liberty that was uniquely political. Wayland Seminary was the, the seedbed for what would become ultimately what we call liberation theology, what was at that time called the theology of revolt. A unique blend of, of Marxist ideas and political activism. And these young students uh, believed that, that the outworking of the gospel was, was, was really to change the shape of society. First and foremost, by attacking, uh, attacking presumed injustices and inequities in society. Booker believed that if the gospel would get a hold of hearts, that men would be set free in such a way that they would become productive in their own lives. They would become sturdy and stalwart citizens. And that ultimately, they would be made indispensable. That their indispensability would ultimately knock down the props of prejudice and discrimination. He said at this time in his diary, I, I yearn for the Lord Jesus to fit me in such a way that I am needed by my neighbors. And out of that need will then grow respect. A respect that these around me wish to win by clamoring and shaking their fist in revolt. He concluded this entry by saying, Marvel upon marvels. The gospel brings reformation, not revolution. And so he left Wayland Seminary. And he left with a peculiar notion of, of what academics should actually accomplish. What the value of education might actually be for former slaves and the sons and daughters of former slaves. Shortly after he left Wayland Seminary, he was invited to go back to the Hampton Institute to deliver the commencement address. He was honored by this opportunity and worked hard to craft a speech that would somehow reflect the ideas that he'd been mulling over. The ideas that, that were cemented during his days at Wayland Seminary. And the speech was a rip-roaring success. He stood before the, the young graduates and he said, The great hope of our people is exactly the same as the great hope of all Americans. 
It is not to be found in political wrangling. Rather, it is to be found as we are liberated in our hearts. When we become free, our freedom will be made manifest. And no one will be able to hold us back. And our freedom will break the shackles of prejudice around us and set our white neighbors free as well. Let us therefore go into the world as a light, a beacon, not as a club or a bludgeon. General Armstrong, along with all of the others, were amazed at his oratorical skills. He had worked hard on them while he was in Wayland Seminary because he couldn't stand the lectures that he was hearing. And so after he would attend class at Wayland Seminary, he would, he would go out into the quadrangle of the seminary, the, the, the small park space that uh, was between the lecture halls and the dormitory rooms. And he would uh, stand beneath a tree and refute everything that his professors had said. He used to gather crowds. Even professors would come in here. He would listen in the classroom. And all the while, these, uh, these roiling feelings are just churning. Um, his, uh, his professors called him Old Fire Breather. And so in these kind of impromptu, extemporaneous sermons beneath the oak tree in the quadrangle of Wayland Seminary, refuting everything that he just learned in the classroom, he learned great oratorical skills. He also learned how to handle difficult crowds. Because his fellow students laughed and they mocked and they jeered and professors would come along and they would whisper things in other students' ears and they would uh, pass them along. And so he became quite an orator. General Armstrong thought, this young man shows promise. And he immediately asked him to join the faculty of the Hampton Institute. And for the next a couple of years, he was the premier professor, being groomed by General Armstrong, ultimately to take over the work. Armstrong records in his diary, I have never beheld in a young man such great promise. And it's not promise that springs out of natural ability. Rather, there seems to be a grace-bestowed passion in this man. A grace-bestowed passion that has transformed him from, from servile to Savior. I tremble to consider his future. After a couple of years teaching at the Hampton Institute, a very strange convergence of events began to swirl around Booker's life. Changed him and the nation uh, forever after. There was a, a politician named Wilbur Foster in Alabama who was vying for the gubernatorial nomination of his party. In those days, in Alabama, blacks still had the vote and comprised a, a pretty strong swing minority vote 
in every election, though most former slaves did not actually go to the polls, if they did, they could determine the outcome of an election. There was a remarkable craftsman in the a small southern Alabama a township of Tuskegee named Lewis Adams, who had pulled himself up by his own bootstraps and had become a, a, a very influential man. And Wilbur Foster, the former Confederate colonel, came to Lewis Adams and said, I'm running for governor. What can I do to get your vote and to get you to turn out the vote of all of the former slaves in Alabama for me? Lewis Adams surprised him by saying, I don't want anything for myself, but... If it is at all possible for the legislature of Alabama to establish a school for Negro teachers, I would turn out the vote for you. Adams made good on his word, and he turned out the vote for Foster. Foster lost the election. But Foster was still in the state legislature, and he did not forget his promise pushed forward a bill, and $2,000 a year was set aside to establish in Tuskegee a new technical institute for former slaves and their sons and their daughters. Now, the state legislature set up a committee. We've got to find a principal. We've got to find teachers. We've got to find a place for this school to meet. And so a letter was immediately sent to General Armstrong at the Hampton Institute. We need a teacher. We need a headmaster. We need a principal. Who do you suggest? They wanted somebody like General Armstrong, a learned white man, to come and start this school of mercy to slaves and their sons and daughters. But General Armstrong wrote back and said, the best man for the job is young Booker T. Washington. By the way, he chose his own last two names, Talaferro for a local plantation where he'd grown up that uh, may have been uh, where his father came from, though he never actually learned his paternity, and uh, Washington for his hero of the American Revolution. In time, an answer returned, we will accept Washington. Booker loaded up his earthly belongings on a cart and made his way to southern Alabama. He arrived and discovered that uh, there was no money, no faculty, no campus, no land, no student body. Indeed, there was nothing except the resolution of the state to launch this school and the determination of Booker T. Washington to raise up a whole new generation of leaders from the rubble of the South and the legacy of slavery. Over the next 34 years, until his death, Booker T. Washington labored to that end. And before his death in 1915, Tuskegee had grown to encompass a 2,000-acre campus of 107 buildings, more than 1,500 students, nearly 200 faculty members. And more importantly, though, Washington had instilled his philosophy of hard work, 
competence, community-mindedness, and thousands of students all across the country who are at last making a substantive difference in the welfare of African-American families, churches, neighborhoods, and businesses. Washington made certain that the curriculum of the school not only emphasized the traditional academic disciplines, but also the virtues of industry, cleanliness, and personal morality. He believed that uh, ultimately, if young black students could learn these lessons, they could make themselves indispensable to their communities, thus accomplishing more to end discrimination, segregation, and prejudice than any political program of civil rights ever might. Besides the grammar, logic, and rhetoric of a standard classical education which they received there, students at Tuskegee built virtually all of the buildings. They even made the bricks and fired them. They cut and hewed the timbers that were used to construct them. They manufactured the pillows and the mattresses used in the dormitory. They tilled the soil and tended the crops in the campus gardens. They cooked the food that was served in the cafeteria. Indeed, every student was expected to acquire the practical knowledge of at least two trades, together with the spirit of industry, thrift, and economy necessary to make an honest living after they graduated. That was why the the uh, New York Mercury, a literary magazine, in 1905, said that the Tuskegee Institute was turning out more self-made millionaires at that time than Harvard, Yale, and Princeton combined. I mean, think of it. Take the example, for instance, of Jonathan Holmes. The son of former slaves, Jonathan Holmes, came to Tuskegee Penniless. He could barely read when he arrived. He graduated four years later as the valedictorian of his class, having majored in Greek and business administration. His intention was to start small businesses that dispossessed blacks in the urban communities, and particularly of his hometown, Birmingham, Alabama, uh, the, the new steel center of the, of the reconstructed South. Not a nice term in my part of the country, by the way. He wanted to find a way to take these dispossessed blacks and put them into business for themselves. And so with, with nothing more than a degree in Greek and business administration, he climbed aboard his homemade cart, pulled by the lone donkey that he'd raised from a foal, and made his way to the industrial center of Birmingham in the week after his graduation from Tuskegee. He had an idea. The idea was to start a shoeshine business. He would take scrap lumber they would find from the pallets outside the steel mills and at night craft them into small boxes suitable to be uh, ported about by the youngsters that he would meet in the streets and provide this opportunity. Essentially, what he did was he started a shoe-shining franchise business. He made up a number of these boxes and stocked them with shoe black. They would find promising young boys and he would train them for a week. 
The deal was the boys could keep 80% of their earnings and they paid 20% back for their franchise fee until the entire franchise fee of $300 was paid back. This remarkable idea made Jonathan a millionaire in five years' time. He became the first significant black landholder in Birmingham. He built whole neighborhoods and became the first significant developer of suburban homes for blacks. It was the fruit of this notion that if you make yourself indispensable, freedom will come. Booker loved stories like that. He loved to, to, to see the way that goodness and gentleness and productivity, tenacity and courage could overcome the minions of prejudice and discrimination and many, many years of bitterness and separation. But for this philosophy, he paid a great price. Paid a great price and his family. Because of the amount of work that this required, he practically worked himself to death three different times, collapsing of utter and complete exhaustion. And he did indeed die at an early age in 1915. In addition, his family worked hard. He lost two wives to overwork. But he saw in this a diligent labor the opportunity to show his people a way out. Now, a lot of the students who came to Tuskegee oftentimes came with the same kind of attitudes that the students at Wayland Seminary came with. They came there thinking, I'm going to get an education and I no longer have to work with my hands. I'll get an education and I no longer have to do manual labor. I'll get an education and I can escape from all of that. And they arrive at the campus and they find out that uh, one of their classes is brick making. That they're building the new science observatory. And then in the afternoons they're expected to stuff feathers into pillows. That the beginning of every chapel service is, is following behind Booker T. Washington as he marches out into a glen with an axe over his shoulder showing them the proper way to fell a tree. It was mind-boggling to them, and yet for those who bought into the vision, opportunities abounded. Not only that, but as a result of his efforts and as a result of the success of these students, Washington himself became a celebrity. Now, I'm much in demand as a speaker and a lecturer around the country. As a consultant and confidant to powerful politicians and community leaders, though he was, he was criticized by some because he refused to use his influence for direct political agitation, he had obviously begun the long process toward the reconciliation of long-sundered communities and races. In 1895, a great exposition was planned in Atlanta. The Cotton State Exposition was to be a showcase to demonstrate to the nation what the South had been able to do 
in the years since the war and Reconstruction to reestablish themselves as, as vital aspects of the national character. Booker T. Washington was invited to speak. And he was shocked. His shock and trepidation was not helped much when on his way to the railway station, the day before the speech, he met one of his white neighbors who said to him, Well, Booker, you're in it now. You've talked a bunch to them northern whites, and you've talked a bunch to us southern country whites, and you talked a bunch to your own black folk, but now you're about to step in it big. You're going to stand before the rich and the famous. There are going to be newspapers there, Booker. You've stepped in it now. If you come back alive, I'd be right proud. <laughs> the speech was indeed significant. It would be the very first time that in the South, a black man would share a podium with all the most prominent political and cultural leaders of the South. He would address a vast throng of blacks and whites, the creme de la creme of, of Southern society. And so he prepared his words with great care. Ignorant and inexperienced, it is not strange that in the first years of our new life, we began at the top instead of at the bottom, that a seat in Congress or the state legislature was more sought, sought than real estate or industrial skill, that political convention or stump speaking had more attractions than starting a dairy farm or a truck garden. And for this, I must say, we were sadly, sadly mistaken. The New York Times reported that as he began this speech and they issued forth these caveats concerning the political activism of the Reconstruction days that most in the cavernous pavilion were caught entirely off guard. The New York World reported that, that throughout the pavilion you could literally hear a pin drop. He was stately and commanding. He did not hold back at all, but sent forth a flurry of eloquence, the likes of which they could not believe might pass through the lips of a former slave. He went on. A ship lost at sea for many days suddenly sighted a friendly vessel. From the mast of the unfortunate vessel was seen a signal. Water! Water! We die of thirst! The answer from the friendly vessel came back at once. Cast down your bucket where you are. A third and a, a fourth signal, begging for water, was similarly answered. Cast down your bucket where you are. The captain of the distressed vessel, at last heeding the injunction, cast down his bucket and it came up full of fresh, sparkling water from the mouth of the Amazon River. 
To those of my race who depend on bettering their condition in a foreign land or, or who underestimate the importance of cultivating friendly relations with the southern white man who is their next door neighbor, I would say cast down your bucket where you are. Cast it down in making friends in every manly way of the people of all races with whom we are surrounded. Cast it down in agriculture. Cast it down in mechanics. Cast it down in commerce. Cast it down in domestic service. Cast it down in the professions. And in this connection, it is well to bear in mind that whatever other sins the South may be called to bear, when it comes to business, pure and simple, it is in the South that the Negro is given a man's chance in the commercial world. For we have worked side by side with our masters, and we know them, and they know us. And there is nothing in this exposition more eloquent than in emphasizing this chance. Our greatest danger is that in the next great leap from slavery to freedom, we may overlook the fact that the masses of us are to live by the productions of our hands and fail to keep in mind that we shall prosper in proportion as we learn to dignify and glorify common labor and put brains and skill into the common occupations of life. We shall prosper in proportion as we learn to draw the line between the superficial and the substantial, the ornamental goo of life and the useful. No race can prosper till it learns that there is as much dignity in tilling a field as in writing a poem. It is at the bottom of life that we must begin, and not at the top, nor should we permit our grievances to overshadow our opportunities. To those of the white race who look to the incoming of those foreign birth and strange tongue and habits for the prosperity of the South, were I permitted, I would repeat what I say to my own race. Cast down your buckets where you are. Cast it down among the eight millions of Negroes whose habits you know, whose fidelity and love you have tested in days when to have proved treacherous meant the ruin of your firesides. Cast down your buckets among those people who have, without strikes, labor wars, tilled your fields, cleared your forests, built your railroads and cities, brought forth treasures from the bowels of the earth, and helped to make possible this magnificent representation of the progress of the South. Cast down your pocket where you are. The Atlanta Constitution reported the next morning, this is the beginning of a moral revolution in America. The New York world called the speech epic-making. The Boston transcript called it a revelation. President Grover Cleveland wrote, You have brought new hope for the nation. You've applied the gospel in such a way that we can all see clearly the road ahead. The New York Times said, Booker T. Washington is the new Negro Moses. He was immediately thrust into the hubbub of celebrity. Everybody wanted a, a piece of this man. But he was undeterred in his task. He was to build Tuskegee, prepare young people, send them forth, find the George Washington Carvers who would, who would find in the humble peanuts or in the sweet potato uses that would prosper the people. 
That was his task. And he was undeterred in his task. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to listen to the full series, Biographies of Great American Saints, with talks from George Grant, Steve Wilkins, and Douglas Wilson. Listen now on Canon Plus.